Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well, again, good to be with you guys this morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to that passage we just read, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, uh, normally we have some out here available to you, but because of COVID, we are not doing that. So uh, feel free to Google it or whatever. You'll probably find it. Matthew chapter 5 is where we'll be this morning. Uh, If you are brand new with us, let me just kind of catch you up. Uh, For the past several months, we have been in a series walking through the book of Matthew in the Bible and just seeing what we can learn from the book of Matthew. And right now, we are in a section of this book called the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is basically delivering this teaching where he talks about and discusses what life should look like for followers of Jesus in all these different facets of life. So, so far in this teaching, he has discussed things like morality and ethics. He's discussed things like interpersonal relationships and anger and conflict. He has discussed things like sex and sexuality, all these sorts of things that, at least for a lot of people, are are pretty front and center to how we think about and go about our life on planet Earth. But all of that said, uh, today's passage, the one that you just heard read, is probably one that you read and you think to yourself, "Um, I'm pretty sure this doesn't apply to me, actually. You and I were probably not sitting in the drive-thru line at Starbucks this week just absolutely crushed by guilt over an oath that we swore to our spouse or to our roommate before we left the house. That's, that's just not the world that we live in, at least for most of us. If it does apply to you, feel free and come talk to me. I won't use that illustration in the 1130. But for most of us, these things are not front and center to our life. And, and maybe to you, that kind of feels like good news. Because maybe for the past few weeks as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, maybe you felt like you're not doing so hot on a lot of these. Uh, Like I have also felt that way. Maybe you're like, I haven't been doing so good so far, but I'm pretty sure I'm nailing it on not swearing oaths falsely. I think I'm good on that. If you don't swear oaths at all, you certainly can't swear them falsely. So I think I'm okay on this one. To be sure, on the surface, this section of Jesus' teaching does not seem immediately relevant to probably most of us in today's world. But what we're going to discover as we go along today is that it might be a lot more relevant than it first appears. So to be sure, on, on some level, this specific expression of the problem is unique to Jesus' first century context. But I actually think what he says and the ideas he tries to get across here has some very pointed things, actually, to teach us about how we go about our lives on a day-to-day basis. So we're going to get into all of that as we go along today. But first, we've got to sort of dig into the passage and figure out what type of thing Jesus was talking about to begin with, because the more we understand what he was saying to his audience, the more we can then understand how to apply it to our lives today. So let's dive into the passage and take a look. Follow along with me in Matthew 5, starting in verse 33. Again, you have heard it said, 
You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. So a little background here. In the Old Testament, people would swear oaths to verify the authenticity of something that they said or something that they promised to someone. So in our day today, we would probably be more likely to use something like a legal contract. So if you want someone to believe that you can be trusted today, you might draw up a binding agreement. You might have a lawyer sign off on the language for it. Maybe you and the other person sign it. Maybe even have it notarized or something like that. That's how we would go about things like this today. But ancient cultures, the the culture that Jesus is talking to, they were oral cultures. They operated far more often in verbal agreements than in written ones. So there needed to be some sort of way in this day and age to verify the reliability of those verbal agreements that people would enter into with one another. And to accomplish that, they often used oaths. Now, I know that might seem silly to some of us, but if you think about it, if you really think about it, it's also kind of silly that to us in our culture, just signing your name in cursive on a sheet of paper means something, right? Like if you really think about it, that's an odd practice. Why would signing my name in cursive mean something more than just saying that I'll do something? But in our culture, we have decided that signing your name in cursive means something, and in their day, they had decided that oaths meant something. And for some time at this point in the history of the Bible, people had been invoking God's name in these oaths. So highly religious culture, God's name carried significant weight culturally. So using God's name in your oath, swearing an oath with God's name attached to it was was a pretty important way to reinforce that particular oath. And because of that, there were all sorts of commands in the Old Testament, in the Bible, about how if you swore an oath and you invoked God's name in it, you better be sure to follow through on whatever it was. Because if you didn't, you weren't just trashing your reputation, you were actually trashing God's reputation. So all these commands were basically God being like, hey, if you want to be a shady person, do that on your own time. Don't invoke my name and my reputation into it. And this is actually a pretty big part of what it means to, quote, take God's name in vain, if you've ever heard that language before. If you grew up in church, you may have heard that. So growing up, I always thought that taking God's name in vain was saying things like, oh my God. That's what I was told. So then I started saying, oh my gosh, and was quickly told that I couldn't say gosh either because that was just a substitute for God. And then I, I, I ended up saying a lot of ga, like golly, and, and I think that one was okay, but there were sort of mixed reviews on that one. Did anybody else grow up hearing this sort of thing, or am I crazy? Okay, so other people have have heard of this. Okay, that's not actually what taking God's name in vain means, at least not in the Bible. Really, what it meant to take God's name in vain was to invoke God's name and God's reputation into something in a flippant, careless sort of way. And specifically for today's topic, it 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 meant not to leverage God's name to cover for your own lack of trustworthiness. It was a very serious thing to invoke God's name into an oath, so there were all sorts of serious consequences if you did that, and especially if you ended up not following through on whatever that oath was. But then here's what started to happen. People in that day knew that it was a grave sin to take the Lord's name in an oath, especially if you ended up not following through on it. So people started finding ways around those commands. 
They would still swear oaths, but they wouldn't swear by God's name. They would instead swear by things like heaven or swear by earth or swear by Jerusalem, the holy city where the temple was located. Or, or sometimes people would even swear by things like their own head. So people started swearing by all these different things that were still significant things. So the, the oaths still had that weightiness to them. But because they weren't God's name or God's reputation, there weren't severe consequences for not following through on them. You tracking with me so far? So I know that might seem a bit odd to us, but hopefully it at least makes sense what they were doing at that particular time. They were invoking all these other things because if they didn't follow through on oaths and they just swore by heaven, there weren't as severe of consequences than if they would have sweared on God's name. So that's what people were doing. And into that situation, into that sort of circumstances, Jesus says the following, picking it back up in verse 34. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair on your head white or black. So Jesus says, hey, this, this whole system is broken. He says the problem isn't actually just that you swear oaths and don't follow through on them. The problem is that you deceive each other often enough to need oaths in the first place. And this pattern of dishonesty and deception, it had led them to creating this whole entire system where you can make yourself appear honest while simultaneously avoiding any of the negative consequences of dishonesty. Does that make sense? So Jesus just calls that whole system out exactly for what it is. And to expose how silly all of that is, Jesus goes on to show how really swearing by any of these other things is actually still effectively invoking God's name in that oath. He says, don't swear by heaven because that's where God is. Don't swear by the earth because that's God's footstool. Don't swear by Jerusalem because that's the holy city. And don't even swear by your own head because you aren't in control of your own head either. God is. Jesus is saying effectively, hey, you think you're being clever by coming up with all these different sorts of things to swear by, but God is in charge of those things too. So that's not better. That's not actually a way around the negative consequences of your actions. Instead, Jesus says, here's what you should do. Here's how you should approach things like this instead. Look at verse 37 with me. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So instead, you should just be who you say you are, do what you say you'll do, and no oaths of any type are actually needed. Bypass the whole system by just living a life of integrity to begin with, and then you'll be fine. Okay, so at this point... You might be thinking, okay, I understand what's happening in the passage now. I still don't understand how it applies to my life today, at least not in any specific sort of way. You might be thinking this still is all pretty foreign to me and how I go about my life in the 21st century. So let me offer at least three ways this morning how this principle, this idea that Jesus tries to get across might apply to our lives today. First, tell it like it actually is or was. Tell it like it actually is or was. 
I think there is probably a temptation in each and every one of us to appear just a little bit better than we are. Can we at least agree on that much? Maybe we like to think that we would never just go around telling outright lies to people because that would be obviously wrong, right? Maybe we like to think we wouldn't do that. But maybe we have the habit of just stretching the truth a little bit, embellishing for effect, making ourselves look just a little more noble, a little more impressive, a little more interesting in how we talk about ourselves or tell stories about things that happened. Uh, One constant way that this happens in our world today is through social media. Social media, really, if you think about it, is the most ideal environment to tell it just a little bit better than it is, right? And, and I'm just as guilty of this as anybody. Like, if you go online and you scroll through my Twitter feed right now, you know what you will find? You will find me tweeting about hanging out in semi-cool places with semi-cool people. You will find me saying things like, man, I'm really excited about this teaching this Sunday. I'm really excited about this series we're about to do at City Church. You know what you won't find on my Twitter feed? Me saying things like, well, got distracted reading BuzzFeed articles this week, so I really think the teaching's going to suck, but see you at 9.30 or 11.30. Because that's not what social media is. It's not where we tell it like it actually is. That it's, it's where we tell it just a little bit better than it is. Social media is just one long highlight reel of our lives, at least for most people. But what I think is even more interesting is that some people take that approach, not just to social media, but to their lives in general. They tell it just a little bit better than it is constantly in every conversation that they have with other people about their lives. For them, life is just one perpetual Instagram filter, making things look just a little bit better than they are. So, for instance, maybe at some point this week, you found yourself recounting an interaction that you had with somebody else earlier in the week. And in that actual interaction, when it actually happened earlier in the week, the other person absolutely got the best of you. Your, your boss, your friend absolutely got the best of you. But in how you tell the story about that interaction, you had the perfect comeback, right? You said just the perfect thing. You got them. You had the perfect one-liner in that moment. Or how about when your spouse asks you why you didn't do that thing that you said you would do? Run that errand, take out the trash, wash those dishes, whatever it was. When they ask you why you didn't get around to that even though you said you would. And you just respond by telling them how unbelievably busy your day was. Like you just don't understand how busy and stressful my day was. And, and what actually happened that day was that you sat in traffic for, you know, 5, 10, 15 minutes. It was, you know, some congestion on I-40 or whatever. But in how you tell your spouse about that day, it's, man, it was a wreck. I sat in traffic for 45 minutes. I didn't have time to do anything once I got home. Anybody ever done that? Just me? The sermon's going to be really helpful for me if it's just me, but I would imagine maybe some of us have done things like that. Okay, so those sorts of things would be included in what Jesus is warning about in our passage. And we do this, right? I mean, there's no use in pretending that we don't. We constantly make these little tweaks to the truth. These tiny little adjustments to what actually happened or what we actually said or did in order to make ourselves appear just a little bit better than we are, just a little more noble than we are. 
And for some of us, maybe we do it almost subconsciously. Maybe we even justify doing it in our minds because we tell ourselves that, that telling a lie or exaggerating the truth would lead to a better outcome than if we told the truth. But I need you to see that that is the same core problem as what Jesus is talking about in this passage. People were, were swearing on this thing and swearing on that thing and being dishonest because they were convinced that being dishonest would lead to a better outcome than if they told the truth. So instead of all of that, as the people of Jesus, let's just tell it like it actually is or like it actually was. Let's develop a habit of telling the truth in our interpersonal relationships, even when it makes us look a little bit silly or a little bit wrong or a little bit self-righteous or a little selfish. Let's still choose to tell the truth, to represent things like they actually happened. Because at the end of the day, that's what's behind it all, right? We, we exaggerate because we think we can control through our exaggeration what other people think of us. That's the reason we lie. So this week, maybe there will be a moment where you catch yourself doing this. Maybe this week you'll be talking to somebody and you'll realize in this moment you will hear the voice of Jesus in your head and go, you know what, I'm doing it right now. I'm exaggerating. I'm embellishing in this moment. So what if this week when you catch yourself doing that, what if you just stopped in the moment and said, I'm sorry, that, that's not actually true. <laughs> that's not actually what happened. Here's, what's actu here's what actually happened and then tell them what actually happened. If you do that, it will be terribly awkward and everyone will be better off because of it. What if we took Jesus seriously on this and chose to tell it like it actually is? That's the first way that this passage intersects our lives today. Let me tell you the second way. Second way I think this applies to us today. Honor your commitments whenever possible. Honor your commitments whenever possible. So Jesus says in our final verse of this passage, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. He says, in theory, a, father, a follower of Jesus should not need to give anything more than their word. Nothing else should be required for us. As a follower of Jesus, you shouldn't need to invoke promises or oaths or the name of God for people to believe that you are who you say you are and that you'll do what you say you'll do or that you'll be where you say that you will be. Back in 2017, there was an article in the New York Times by a guy named David Brooks called The Golden Age of Bailing. And I'll just be honest, it is a very convicting article, especially, I'll say, for probably people my age and younger. Very convicting article. But in this article, the author makes the point that there has never been a time in our society's history, in his opinion, when bailing on people and commitments has been more common and socially accepted than it is right now. I'll just read you the opening paragraph because I think it is just, I mean, he's just reading our mail in this particular part of it. So he says, all across America, people are deciding on Monday that it would be really fantastic to go grab a drink with X person on Thursday. But then when Thursday actually rolls around, they realize it would actually be more fantastic to go home, flop on the bed, and watch carpool karaoke videos. So they send the bailing text or email, so sorry, I'm going to have to flake on drinks tonight, overwhelmed, my grandmother just got the bubonic plague. 
Anybody ever gotten a text like that? I won't make you raise your hands, but anybody sent a text like that before? Isn't this what so many of us do? We just say yes to all of these commitments. We commit to all these hangouts with random people in our lives. And then some of us have never scheduled an event on our calendar that we aren't willing to bail on if the right mood hits us. A lot of us put all of these things on our calendar constantly. If you just looked at our iCal, it would be completely full of appointments. We put all these things on our calendar because to us, all of them are hypothetical and can be canceled on if we need to. And maybe that seems to you like a very harmless, morally neutral, inconsequential thing to do. Let me tell you why it matters, though. Believe it or not, a prerequisite for meaningful relationships and meaningful friendships in your life is commitment. All other things being equal, the more committed you are to a friendship, to a relationship, the more meaningful and beneficial that friendship will be. That's just the way friendships work. Which means, on the other hand, the more you are willing to bail on your relationships, the less likely you are to have many deep, meaningful relationships. The New York Times, again, for the kill here, says there was a time not long ago when a social commitment was not regarded as a disposable post-it note. When people took it as a matter of course that reliability is a core element of treating people well, that how you spend your time is how you spend your life, and that, listen to this, if you don't flake on people who matter, you have a chance to build deeper and better friendships and live in a better and more respectful way. The New York Times will preach occasionally if you'll let it. If you don't flake on people, he says, you have a chance to build deeper and better friendships. Do you see this? This is how relationships work in life. This is how character development in your life works. If all you ever do is bail on people and bail on commitments, you will likely find yourself in a perpetual circle of shallow friendships and stunted personal growth as well. So in our church, Just in the day-to-day life of our church, we probably see this problem the clearest in the context of our our life groups. We'll have someone join a life group because they really want meaningful, deep friendships with other followers of Jesus, relationships with people that can help them become more like Jesus, which is great. That's precisely what life groups are there for. But then they'll also want to wait until every week at the very last minute to decide whether they're going to show up to life group or not which more often than not leads to them texting at the very last minute and saying, sorry, everybody, I'm just really tired today, had a really busy week, I just need to rest, I won't be there. Now listen, I get it. Days can get busy, life can be exhausting, and there may be a day or two here or there where you need to take an evening to catch your breath, and that is totally understandable, absolutely understandable. But I'll say this, If that's a pattern for you, if every other week you're saying that you just had a busy day or that you're tired, it is going to be really difficult for you to have meaningful relationships with other followers of Jesus. You're fighting an uphill battle. 
Because if all it takes for you to, to bail on your life group is being slightly more tired or busy than normal, you may be surprised to find out that those relationships remain pretty shallow in your life. Because to grow in depth and relational intimacy with other people, there has to be a reasonable explanation that you won't bail on them at a moment's notice constantly, which is why we need to honor our commitments. Now, still, maybe to some of that, some of you are thinking, really? Honor your commitments? Like, that's what we're talking about in church today? Maybe to you, that feels very unspiritual in its nature. Here's why it's not. At least a lot of the time, if you have a habit of bailing on people, that all comes down to you caring more about your own convenience and freedom than you do about the other person. Not all the time. A lot of the time, that's what it is. That so much of the time is what drives this tendency, this habit in our life. And right here in the Sermon on the Mount, in just a couple chapters, in fact, in chapter 7, Jesus is going to say that everything we are called to as followers of Jesus, the, the sum of the law and the prophets is that we would love the Lord and that we would love our neighbor as ourself. That's what he says everything hinges on when it comes to being a follower of Jesus. And if you are regularly bailing on people, you are not loving your neighbor as yourself. You're loving them significantly less than yourself. But if you are willing to not only make commitments in your life, but also to honor them, if you're willing to not just put stuff on your calendar, but keep things on your calendar and show up when you said you would show up, that is a good way to demonstrate that you are at least as committed to other people as you are to yourself. And when that is true of us, we have got a real shot as followers of Jesus at lasting, meaningful, transformative relationships in our day-to-day -day lives. So whether it's your commitments to being present with your life group or commitments to family or commitments to friends or acquaintances or colleagues in your life, do whatever you can to honor those commitments. There will be scenarios in life where you will have to cancel. That's to be expected. I think everyone understands that. But whenever that's not the case, whenever you can honor those commitments, even when it's inconvenient or even when it's not ideal, choose to honor them. Does that make sense? Okay, last one. This one might be a little bit controversial, but we'll go for it. Lastly, do not use God as cover. Don't use God as cover. Let me explain what I mean by that. So remember from our passage in Matthew 5 that at the core of the problem was that people were invoking the name of God, they were bringing in the name of God or things related to God to cover for their dishonesty. If they didn't think people would believe them in their agreements with people and the things that they said to people, if they didn't think people would believe them, they would swear by God or by Jerusalem or by heaven or by the temple. It was this way of sort of sneakily bypassing people's suspicions about them by appealing to a common belief in God, essentially using God as cover for their dishonesty or evasiveness. And while it may look a little bit different today, I think this is actually something that happens on a regular basis among Christians. Think of all the times that you hear Christians throw out phrases like, God told me to, 
or God is leading me to, or I feel like God is saying this to me, or one of my personal least favorites, God opened a door. Now, with this, let me first say, I can feel the nervousness in the room, let me first say that I sincerely hope we are all listening to the voice of God in our life frequently and regularly enough to hear him speak things to us. I sincerely hope that's the case. I hope we are regularly hearing him speak things to us about what we should do and where we should go and what we should say to people. The Holy Spirit is alive and he speaks to people and I believe he regularly tells people to do and say specific things. So I I believe every bit of that. And if that's what you mean when you use phrases like God told me to or God said to me or God is leading me, I say absolutely. Keep on keeping on with that. Big fan. But that being said, I have been around the Christian block a time or two, and I can't help but notice that at least some of the time, Christians use phrases like that a little bit differently. It's almost like people use language like God is telling me to or God said to me to preface things that they just personally want to do. Sometimes it seems like what some Christians mean by God is telling me to do this is I've made up my mind about this and I don't want anyone to challenge it. And sometimes I'll find that people say that God is leading them to do things that don't really seem all that consistent with who God is. They don't really seem that consistent with who the scriptures say that God is. So I'll just start by picking on pastors a little bit. Uh, Growing up in the church, I always found it interesting that whenever a pastor would accept another job at a new church, he would tell his existing church that God was calling him to a new opportunity. That's usually the language that was used. And it was just a little bit curious to me that God never seemed to call pastors to new opportunities at smaller churches with lower salaries. The only new opportunities that God called people to were bigger churches and or higher salaries. That seems a little bit odd, right? Especially if you look at the life of somebody like Paul and saw the life that he had in planting churches. It seems like God would at least occasionally call people to circumstances that were a little bit less ideal than their current one. But that one's not unique to pastors either. I find that not many people at all ever experience God leading them to take a worse job at a lower salary. Quite frequently, it's always the better company with better pay and better benefits that people feel led by the Spirit to work for. And that's not all wrong, for sure. Don't hear me saying it's wrong for you to take a pay raise. Okay, sometimes that's fine. But it's also not always right to assume that that's what God wants you to do. Or how about, this one will be fun, when people play the God card in romantic relationships. We've got a good many single people that are around our church. I'm assuming some of you may have experienced this at some point. So the God card, if you're unfamiliar, is when someone invokes the name of God in entering into or exiting a romantic relationship. So I I knew a guy back in college. Uh, I was not close friends with him or I would have called him out on this. Um, I knew a guy back in college who would ask girls out, I'm not joking about this, by saying, God told me that I'm supposed to ask you out. One time, he tried that in a coffee shop, 
And he had the woman respond to him saying, God told me to ask you out with, and I quote, wow, thank you for sharing that with me. If you could just hang tight for a bit, my husband is going to be meeting me here in a few minutes, and I'm sure he would love to hear about what God is telling you, (laughs) which is just an absolutely savage response to that. I mean, just unbelievable. Props to her. But it's not just men that do this. Uh, Ladies, I have even heard on quite a few occasions that you may have used the God card as well, maybe even sometimes in getting out of a dating relationship. Not saying that's never valid. God can absolutely speak to you about needing to end a dating relationship, but here's the thing. If all you mean when you say that is, I don't want to be in this relationship anymore, don't just tack God's name onto that as a smokescreen. That's not okay. And especially if there are specific reasons, good reasons, that you feel like it's not a healthy relationship or that that guy is not a healthy person to be in a relationship with, then it might actually help to tell him some of those things. Those are opportunities for him to grow as a follower of Jesus, and those things might be helpful to him in the future. So as his sister, it might benefit you to to actually have those conversations with him rather than just using God as cover for it. I'll give you one more, and this one's for me at least, is a lot harder to hear. There was a guy I knew who was uh, regularly tempted to hook up with girls that he met on Tinder. Thankfully, he was super transparent about that with his small group. They regularly checked in on him about it. They, they constantly asked him how he was doing with it, helped him fight against that tendency. But one day, out of nowhere, this guy announced to his small group that a position had opened up with his company in a different city and that he was going to take the job. The strange thing was that it was not a better job or even a better paying job, and it wasn't even that cool of a city to live in. And he didn't know anybody in this city. It was actually a long ways away. But in telling his life group about why he was choosing to take the job, he said it really just felt like, quote, God was opening a door. Long story short, he moved to take the job in that new city and within months of moving, called his life group leader and said that he was really struggling because he had hooked up with over a dozen girls that he met on Tinder in just a couple months. One of them turned out to be a minor. So it turns out, whether he realized it or not, the draw to this new job in a new city actually had a lot to do with him being able to hide really well there. But he used God as cover. So here's my point. I would almost be inclined to think that some people say things like, God told me to, to avoid being challenged on whatever they're about to do. And the problem is that when we do that, we often short-circuit hearing the actual voice of God through other people in our lives that know us and know Jesus. And often what I've found is that over time, we will begin struggling to hear the actual voice of God in our lives because we have so confused him with the voice of our own desires and longings. And again, I believe that sometimes God really does open doors if you want to use that language. Again, that's not my favorite language, but if you want to use it, go ahead. 
I believe that God really does do that at times. Absolutely he does. Sometimes he provides us with opportunities, and sometimes they really are good opportunities. Sometimes God will even lead you to do things that happen to run parallel to the good desires and the good longings and the good passions that you have. But don't use God as cover to do whatever you want and keep people from speaking into it. Don't use God as some sort of trump card to to justify disregarding other spirit-filled people in your life. If God really is calling you to do something, to move somewhere, to take a job, to be in or out of a relationship, any of that, if God really is calling you to those things, then other Holy Spirit-filled people in your life will be able to help you confirm that he is saying those things. But if you think you're the only person who can hear clearly from God about your life, I think you may have confused the voice of God with your own desires. So in summary, tell it like it is, honor your commitments whenever possible, and don't use God as cover. Three ways that I think Jesus' teaching on swearing oaths directly impacts the way that we conduct our lives today. But as we wrap up, and before we wrap up, we need to answer one last very important question if we're going to fight against this tendency in us. We need to ask the question, why do we lie? Why do we lie? What prompts us to exaggerate the truth and misrepresent reality? What inspires us to, to make commitments that we know we have no intention of keeping? What leads us to use God as cover for our decisions instead of explaining our actual motivations behind them? Why do we do all of that in the first place? Why do we actually lie? Well, I think we've already hinted at it. I think it all comes down to one word, fear. We lie because of fear. We lie because we are nervous about or anxious about or fearful of the results of telling the truth. Because we know that the truth, people knowing the truth about us might make people think differently or negatively about us. If people knew what we actually felt, what we actually thought, what we actually did, if people knew that, they might not like us or accept us as a result. If, if we just said no to the commitments that we know we aren't intending to keep, people f- might think that we're stuck up or that we think we're too good for them. If, if we just said, hey, the reason I want to move is because I don't like being known by people and I just want to do what I want to do, people might think ill of us as a result. People might think we're spiritually immature. The reason we lie most of the time is fear. So what is the solution to fear? That's actually an easy one, love. Love is the solution to fear, but not just any love, something called perfect love. Take a look with me at 1 John 4, verse 18 on the screen. It says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So listen, when you encounter perfect love, the type of love that accepts you just as you are and does not change its opinion of you based on knowing the truth about you, when you encounter that type of love, it will cast out fear in your life. 
It creates this safe space for honesty to happen because there's not a fear of what will happen as a result of your honesty. Can you imagine what it would feel like if none of us felt like we had to pretend to be somebody we aren't? If we didn't constantly make decisions based on what other people might think of us in return, can you imagine an environment where so many of us are convinced that our righteousness comes from Jesus that we aren't constantly trying to prove our righteousness to each other? Does that not sound like the most freeing thing ever? I mean, I think for some of us, it's even hard to imagine that because we've been living in something so different for so long. Okay, Jesus says that type of environment is possible through his people. That type of environment is possible. So within a community of followers of Jesus, there can be honesty because there is no longer fear associated with that honesty. To eradicate fear from our community, we need to learn to love each other like that. But that ability can only come from one place, and it's in the second part of that passage. So look at where the ability to love like that comes from. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. Just a handful of verses earlier in 1 John 4, he's going to say that, that love is actually shown. Love is defined by God sending Jesus into the world to die for our sins. That's what true, perfect love actually is. And when you understand that, when you understand that Jesus did that for you, you start to learn how to love other people in a similar way. And when you do that, when we all learn how to do that, we all start to see that we don't need to lie or misrepresent ourselves to other people to manage people's perception of us. We don't have to live in fear of what other people will think if they know what really happened or if they know who we really were, if they knew what we really thought. None of that will control us any longer because we have encountered and have access to a perfect love in Jesus. And by being a community built on that love, we can be people who relay that love to one another in an everyday sort of way. We can create an environment where we don't operate out of fear, where we don't manage other people's perception of us. We can live into and out of complete transparency because we have been perfected in the perfect love of Jesus. That's where it all starts. And so for each and every one of us, my, my prayer is that we would encounter the type of love that is so evident in who Jesus is. Until we encounter that, there's not a chance that we will be able to live into what Jesus describes in Matthew 5. But once you encounter that love from Jesus, even if you don't feel like you have anybody to relay that love to you, you can learn how to live out of that. You can learn how to represent yourself as you actually are, to stop managing other people's perception because you've encountered the perfect love of Jesus. So I'd love to pray for us this morning that the Spirit would do that in our midst. Let's pray together. Father, um, we first just want to acknowledge that the temptation um, towards dishonesty is, is very real, is very constant in our world. 
We got this, this inclination to, to misrepresent ourselves or misrepresent things that happened in our lives. Um, it's just sort of the air we breathe in a lot of ways. And God, we also want to acknowledge those of us who are followers of Jesus that um, the temptation to do that is not just out there, it's actually in us. God, there are parts of us that don't want to believe that our righteousness, our goodness has been established through the blood of Jesus. And, and because of that, we constantly feel this draw to trying to establish it in other ways. And so God, more than anything this morning, I, I wanna pray that you would just make that righteousness that you've given us resonate in our souls. That you would give us the ability to just lean back and rest in who you have made us through the cross. And then as a result of that, would you propel us, one, to, to show that type of love to other people in our lives? Would you help us to create environments where other people don't feel like they have to misrepresent themselves either because they know no matter what, they'll be, they will encounter perfect love? But God, will you also help us to be people of integrity? People that do what we say we'll do. People who are where, where we say we will be. And God, through that, would you help us point to a better way to the people around us? God, all the other things that um, a lot of us are wrestling with, I know, I think this one can probably just be easy to overlook and just say, oh, I just exaggerated a little bit. I, I just, I embellished the truth for effect. It's not a big deal. But God, it is a big deal because when we misrepresent the truth, we, we misrepresent you. You are truth and you call us to be people of truth. And so, God, would you help us to become that by your grace? God, would you, through your indwelling spirit, just eliminate and eradicate any need to lie, any need to misrepresent, any need to embellish? And would you help us instead to live out of the truth? to base our lives on the truth. We ask this in your name, for your glory.